There we go. I apologize. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And I really struggled this week in looking at the message that we um, did together this past week and, and looking at Romans 12, 1 and 2 and the verses that follow in 3 through 8. Um, I, I wanted to do a, a lengthy review with a bit of a different application to this passage of Scripture uh, for continuity's sake, um, spent a lot of time in, in 12, 1 and 2. There's a lot there, and, and realistically, not all of it was covered. There's still so much that we could learn from this. But um, I wanted to go back and, and revisit this, review it, and make some further application as we walk into the remaining part of this passage of Scripture. We'll continue in this somewhat next week. We'll pick up a piece of this and jump in another passage of Scripture to talk more about spiritual gifts I'm not sure how far we're going to get through this today, but I'll do my best to, to make haste here. So let's look at uh, Romans 12. We're going to go 1 through 8 and hear what God says to us today. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So there's a lot in here, and I'm not sure how far we're going to get, but it's a part of our review and some of this reapplication. First, we're going to look at Number one, a motivated service. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul is urging the brethren to serve him. There's a purpose in this urging that Paul is giving to this Roman church and to all Christians who would ever read this passage of Scripture throughout all time. And as you remember, that word urge means to exhort, to admonish, to encourage. It has as its intended goal to capture the attention of the readers in such a way that their ears would be perked up, they would be ready to receive and act upon whatever it is they're about to hear. This comes under the full authority, the full weight of Paul's apostleship, not just some random guy writing some seemingly good news or some good information that might be helpful in our life. This is coming from the Apostle Paul and what he writes in our urging to serve the Lord is based upon God's mercies. Because of God's mercies, we are to serve Him. Because of, in view of, in light of the mercies of God, we as His children should be motivated to serve the Lord. We don't just receive the mercy of God and sit back and say, wow, this is wonderful. I think I'm going to hog this and I'm just going to bask in its glory and just kind of leave it at that. That's not the purpose. And this is what Paul is wanting to capture our attention to, is the mercy ought to motivate us to serve the Lord. He makes this appeal 
on the basis of God's mercy. And we know what God's mercy is, his undeserved love, his unmerited favor towards us, giving to us what we don't deserve, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We were once dead, but God has made us alive. We were once enemies of God, but now we are reconciled back to him. We were once alienated from God, but now we are heavenly citizens. We were once slaves to sin, But God has set us free so that you and I can enjoy the eternal presence of God. We can know the peace of God. We can hold dear to our hearts the promises of God. We can live our lives with the purposes of God. And we can find victory in our lives because of the power of God in our lives. All of that we enjoy is the result of God showering an abundance of mercy upon us. And that should motivate us to serve Him. Our motivation to serve Him is rooted in who He is and what He has done for us, most specifically through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, number two, not only do we have a motivated service, but we have a dedicated service. Verse 1 continues, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, there's two key components of this. The first one is to present yourself. You know, inherent in that, present yourselves, means that nobody else can present you to the Lord to bask in His mercy, to be motivated to serve Him. Your mama can't pray you into that. Your grandmother can't pray you into that. No one can push or pull you into that. We are to present ourselves to the Lord to serve Him. Now, with this understanding that we are to serve the Lord based upon the mercies of God, there are three responses to this urging that we're hearing from the Apostle Paul in God's Word. The first one is... Yes. The Bible is filled with examples of those who have been called and have said yes. All the way back in the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. That's a big walking away to the land which I will show you. I'm not telling you where it is. Just start walking, and I'm going to lead you where you need to go. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a huge responsibility being called onto Abraham's life. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Hey, that's a big ask, right? All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Leave all that you know. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. And he did it when he was how old? He was 75 years old. Now, some would say, well, he's a lot closer to the genealogy of Adam. Therefore, he was a lot healthier and had a lot more energy. We can only speculate, but I can tell you this. Regardless of the age, Abram said, here I am. 
I will follow you. How about in the book of Exodus when Moses is encountering the burning bush and we read in Exodus chapter 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush and he looked and behold the bush was burning with fire yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, what? Here I am. Well, if I were to walk outside and see a burning bush and heard the voice of the Lord, I would call and I would do whatever God was calling me to do. Really? Would you do that? Do we not have a completed revelation of God's Word in our hands? Do we not know what God has called us to do? But will we say, here am I. In the great book of Isaiah, when he saw the Lord in the temple, we read this, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you have ever experienced the presence of the Lord on any level, you should be able to say with the prophet Isaiah, here am I, send me. And how about Samuel, when he heard the voice in the darkness speaking repeatedly, he says, here I am, I will follow you where you call me to go, this little boy who knew very little about what this would require of his life. And then we go to the New Testament when Jesus was beginning his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Modern translation. God shows up at your job and says, Quit your job, leave your home, and follow me. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. So the expected response and the example of the faithful is to say yes to the Lord when he calls us to follow him. The other response that we find is no. It is the voice of defiance. It is the sound of indifference. It is rooted in the heart of rebellion. And make no mistake about it, you and I say no to the Lord more than we might think we do. I think one of the prime examples we find is in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It would be like saying, I want you to go to New York City. And you say, No, I'm going to go to California. He went in the total opposite direction and he traveled nearly three times as far as the Lord was calling him to go. Jonah said 
No, but Jonah's not alone in this defiance of the Lord. As we revisit the history of the nation of Israel, we look at several passages in the book of Numbers 13, 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Not I might give. Not I'm thinking about it. I haven't made up my mind yet. I'm kind of mulling it over. That's not what God said. I am going to give it to you. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Even though they saw the land that flowed with milk and honey, although they were overwhelmed by the bounty that was theirs, Verse 32, they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone, and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. They have no personal experience with that. There's nobody telling them, hey, don't come in. They'll devour you. That's just the conclusion that they had drawn. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They said, no, we're not going to go. It doesn't matter, God, what you say. We're sitting right here, and as soon as we can make it happen, we're going to get a band of people together, we're going to go back to Egypt, because we would rather be slaves than to follow you by faith into a land of uncertainty. So we can say yes to the call, we can say no to the call. The third option we have is we can say yes, but on my terms. <clears throat> You know, we're all about accepting the call to salvation. We're all about accepting the invitation to heaven. But it's everything in between that can cause us to fumble a little bit and say, well, yeah, you know, I'm not so sure about that. That sounds like I might be a little above my pay grade. I'm not so sure I'm up for the task. I'll do it, God, but I'll do it on my terms. You know, as we look in the book of Acts, in the early days of the church, Many signs and many wonders were taking place. Such a unique experience. We see in Acts chapter 4 an example of this. Verses 36 and 37. Joseph, the Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' seat. Now you've got to know that that didn't happen every day in the temple. This was a unique occurrence. This caught the attention of a lot of people who saw this act of generosity 
at the hands of Barnabas, and we continue that narrative in Acts chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now you know how the story goes, right? They were asked specifically, is this what you sold it for? And they lied through their teeth and said yes. And Peter who was prompted and inspired and spoken to by the Holy Spirit, said, he's lying, called him out, and divine judgment visited Ananias, and he died that day in a hasty burial. They took him outside of the city limits, and sometime later they came back, just as the wife was returning, and Peter asked the same questions, and she said, yep, that was the price, and he already knew she was lying, and God struck her down. She also was taken out side of the city and buried hastily next to her husband. So when we hear the call of God in our lives, we are going to say yes, no, or yes, but God on my terms. Is that the response of the faithful? Wouldn't we like to know exactly what it was going to require of us when we are called to walk by faith and serve Him? Well, absolutely we would. But that's not the way it works. We don't get the set, the process by which God calls us to serve Him. So we are to present ourselves to the Lord. We are to say, here I am, based upon your mercy that you have showered upon me, we present ourselves as a sacrifice. Now I asked you this question last week. Do you like the sacrifice? And much to my surprise, absolutely nobody raised their hands. You could probably ask that question in virtually every church in the country today. And 99.9% of those who know something about the mercy of God would say, I don't like the sacrifice. I don't like to sacrifice anything. We know what it means to sacrifice, don't we? We just don't do a very good job of it. Why? Well, because it's denial of our self. It's denying something that we value, that we treasure, that we prefer, and we become unwilling to let go of this thing that in our minds supersedes the mercy of God in our life. Now, I can ask you the question intellectually, Is there any comparison to the mercy that God has showered on us as children, that sacrifice, and the sacrifice that God asks us to give to Him? Is there a great contrast in those two sacrifices? Oh, you better believe it. There is no comparison to the sacrifice, and yet we make the things that God asks us to do so monumental in our lives that they become unthinkable. Almost like quitting my job, leaving my family, moving someplace west where I don't know where I'm going to go, how I'm going to make it work. That's not what God is calling us to do most of the time. If you were to visit the doctor and the doctor were to tell you, hey, i got good news and bad news. bad news is you're going to die unless you make some drastic changes in your life. But if you make these drastic changes in your life, if you'll give up sugar, 
if you'll get off your couch and exercise, if you begin to eat properly, your life will be extended indefinitely. You would say, I don't want to sacrifice my cookies. I don't want to sacrifice my favorite TV programs. I don't want to have to go to the gym and get all hot and sweaty. Would you make the sacrifice to extend the length of your life if this was the ultimatum that you were given by a doctor? Absolutely we would, right? Because we value our life and we make the determination that the sacrifice is worth the result. So let me ask you this question. Is the sacrifice that we make for the God who has saved us, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is the result worth it? You know, we may not be able to say that with a lot of honesty because we don't always know what the result is going to be. But we can know that God does. And we can know that what isn't rewarded in this earth, during this life, is most definitely going to be rewarded when we stand before Him and enter into the eternity that God has prepared for us. We are to present ourselves as a sacrifice, and the standard is to be pleasing to God. That's what that word acceptable means. It is well-pleasing. We struggle by asking ourselves, am I satisfied with the sacrifice that I'm making for the Lord, instead of asking God if He is satisfied with the sacrifice that we are making for Him? You see, if we really trust Him, if we are really committed to walking by faith before Him, there really isn't a sacrifice that's too great. Now, we may not jump out of the gate ready to go at a moment's notice, but like Jonah, we come around and we're faithful to do what God has called us to do. And we might get swallowed up in the belly of a whale to get there, but that's not God's plan, right? So we would do well to listen to what it means to be willing to present ourselves as a sacrifice in a method and a manner that is pleasing to God. Number three, there is a transformed service. Motivated, dedicated, and transformed. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's four elements in this. The first one is do not be conformed. <clears throat> Here he's giving a very specific command. It is very, very forceful. It's given in an imperative sense, which meaning it's not to be discussed or considered. It's one that we need to follow. And the combination of the verbs in this sentence mean that this conformity that we are not to give ourselves to takes place passively in our lives. This takes place by the world conforming us into its image without any cooperation on our part. All we have to do is just not resist it. It's kind of like trying to have a great lawn. You know, if you don't do anything to your lawn, it's going to become weed infested. Right? It's just going to be what happens to it naturally. But if you take the time and the energy and make the effort, you can have a lawn that looks very, very different. We don't try to be conformed to the world. It just happens 
passively because we don't resist it. We will unintentionally be conformed to the world by doing nothing, and we will be well-pleased in living a self-directed, self-willed, self-served life, looking out for numero uno, me, myself, and I. Or, rather than being conformed, we will be transformed. To be transformed in this verse means that we are to keep on being transformed. We cannot transform ourselves. We are to keep on allowing transformation to take place in our lives. We must be changed. And that transformation happens only by the renewing of our mind. When we are saved, we are made new spiritually. Our mind is still filled with the world's corruption and it has to be removed. It has to be replaced with the truth of God's Word. Our mind is a control center for our thoughts, our feelings, our attitudes, and our actions. And if we don't transform it, we will not be conformed to the image of Christ. We will not walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And we will certainly not present ourselves in a dedicated sacrifice to do what God has called us to do. We must allow the work of God's Word to do what only it can do in our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's God's Word that teaches us what is true. It's God's Word that convicts us of what is wrong. It's God's Word that teaches us the right way to live. It's God's Word, God's Word that trains us in His ways. So that when he calls, we say, here I am, I am willing to go. Now, fourthly, the results is our ability to prove God's will. To prove means to test. It means that we will be able to say that God's will is good, that God's will is acceptable, and that God's will is perfect. That will be what we will learn as we walk in faith, committed to do, all that God has called us to do, when our mind is transformed, we will agree that God's will is good, God's will is perfect, and God's will is acceptable in my life. Now we'll get into the new territory here today. Roman numeral 4, we see a hindered service. Verse 3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but the thanks was to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, Paul's instruction is prefaced by this phrase, through the grace given to me. It indicates that this is not Paul, something Paul is thinking about because he knows something that's going on in the Roman church and this sounds like some good advice. Paul is saying, through the grace given to me, by the revelation of God that by His grace He's given to me, by the grace of God in my position as an apostle, I'm about to say something to you that is of the utmost of importance. Salvation is a work of grace. His call to the ministry of an apostle is a work of grace. His receiving this revelation from God is a work of grace. What Paul does and teaches is a work of grace. And by the grace given to him, he's about to say some things that are very, very important. Now notice the audience that Paul is going to speak to here. The audience is every one of you. Everyone. 
Not some, not most, not all. Not the men, not the women, not the young people. Every one of you need to listen to what it is God is saying to you by the grace given to me. Now, in this, there's a positive and a negative negative element in the application that Paul is making about serving Him upon the mercies of God. So there's the audience, every one of you. There is the warning. This is the negative part here. We need to think correctly. Every one of us has the tendency to think more highly of himself than he should. We tend to overestimate our spirituality. We can overestimate our righteousness. I remember one time years ago we lived in a house that could hold a really large Christmas tree. We never had a, a house like that. So we determined to go out and cut down a tree. And we got there and we saw this tree and it was massive. It was kind of like the movie Christmas Vacation. It had the lights shining on it and you could hear the angelic beings say, this is the tree, this is the tree. So we cut this monster of a tree down. It was somewhere between 12 and 14 feet. Through the help of several people, we got it up onto the van. We strapped it down. We drove an hour and a half home. I pulled into the driveway and I looked at that tree and I said, how am I going to get that thing off the van and into the house? So I looked at it and I said, well, that's probably about middle way. So what I'll do is I'll untie it and I'm going to rock it back and forth. And when it starts to fall over, I'm going to bend down and I'm going to stand underneath it and I'm going to hold this tree up and then I'm going to find a way to get it in the house, right? Well, I rocked the tree, it came off the van, and I splatted on the concrete like a bug because I overestimated my ability to get that tree off the van. When Paul says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, we need to recognize that we have that tendency to do just that. For some people, what God calls them to do is beneath them. It's demeaning to them. It's not worthy of my status. It's inferior to my position. It seems like it's not the best use of my incredibly valuable time. So I think I'm just going to say, I don't think I heard you quite right, God. Maybe you should call somebody else. This tendency that we have in overestimating ourselves to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, by the way, is one of the reasons that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples when he instituted the Lord's Supper, so that they would always remember that they are not the best of the best. They are to become the least of all and serve those that they were trying to lead. We're not to be proud or boastful or arrogant or selfish or condescending and refuse to serve Him no matter what it is He calls us to do. And on the positive part of this instruction, He says in verse 3, but to think so as to have sound judgment. I think in the King James it says sober judgment. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So there's this contrast between having an overestimated value of self and this humble perspective 
that is really to be more true of us. And that's exactly what this is. It's a call to humble self-evaluation based not only upon the mercies of God, but also upon the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God that He would see fit to allow me to serve Him in some sacrificial, dedicated way that I might have the ability to bring some measure of glory and honor to the name above every name, regardless of what it is He's calling me to do. Let me ask you this question. Is He worthy of our service? Has He called us to serve us? Will He equip us to serve Him when He has called us? Yeah, yeah see, we're all about, yeah, uh, He's worthy. Has He called us? Well, I'm not so sure. And Will He equip us? I don't know. So when Paul says that we are to have sound judgment... What's the decision that we should make when God calls us to serve Him? It's to say yes. To say no would be to have unsound judgment because we have taken too lightly the mercies of God. All that we are, both naturally and spiritually, and all that is useful in our service to God is from God, and it is to bring glory to God, whether we teach publicly in front of thousands and thousands of people, or if we're just in the nursery changing diapers and holding this cute and cuddly little baby and singing lullabies because he's a little bit fussy that morning. Everything in between is to be done humbly in light of the mercy of God based upon a proper self-evaluation with the understanding that how could I not serve this great God who has done all that He has done for me? Well, the third element to this hindered service is the challenge, and that is this. We are to exercise our faith. We are to exercise our faith by using the gifts that God has given to us. There is a tendency to undervalue or to underestimate and to underuse what God has entrusted to us in our service to Him. People say things like, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not trained enough, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough information, I don't have enough energy, I don't have enough fill-in-the-blank. We undervalue God's ability to do in us and through us what can only be explained by Him and what comes from the empowerment of God as He makes this gift usable in our life and our service to Him. When I was in college, I started in the spring. So after my first semester, I went to this campus ministry thing over and over and over. And they began to talk about this summer mission trip that was very, very interesting to me. It was ten weeks in the Northwest preaching revivals. And I felt like God was calling me to do that, yet I said, I don't know enough. I've only been a Christian three years. How can I do that? God, I, I, I just don't see any way I can do that. And I heard this quote, and I've never forgotten it. God does not call the equipped. God equips the called. 
You see, if we wait for the perfect scenario, the perfect timing, the perfect set of circumstances, before we're willing to serve Him, it's like nailing jello to a wall. It's never, ever going to stick. We just have to say, here I am. Send me. I trust that You will equip me. And I will cooperate in that by training myself to do whatever this thing is that You've called me to do. There is an expectancy that we will serve Him with whatever gift God has given to us. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So God has given these very public gifts for the purpose of building up the body so the body can build and strengthen itself in a way that pleases God and a way that represents the body of Christ. That brings us to Roman numeral 5 as we continue in our passage, and that is this. It is a unified service. Verse 4, For just as we have many members in one Body. It's not an accident that all this conversation about sacrificial service to God now has as its primary application the body of Christ. There are no coincidences in Scripture. All that we've looked at by the mercies of God present yourselves as a sacrifice to serve Him. The application is within the body of Christ. So there's three truths that we're going to see in these two verses that talk about this unified service that we have. Three truths. Number one, that is this, the unity of the body. We who are in Christ are all members of His body. There is a global body of believers that is the church There is the local body of believers, that's us here today, who are the church. And we have been called and we have been gifted to serve His body globally and locally. Now, we're kind of stretched in what we can do globally. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But locally, as we talk about this group of people, this is where our primary service is begins. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And He, the Father, put all things in subjection under His, Jesus' feet, and gave Him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is His body. One head, one body, one groom, one bride. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ is never, ever plural. It's always singular. So we see unity in the body. Secondly, we see diversity of its members. Verse 4 continues, And all the members do not have the same function. Now, you take our little group of local believers, this body, and we can look around the room and we say, wow, we're a pretty diverse group of people. Right? Different backgrounds, different education, different employment, different gifts, different home lives, different influences. Yet, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are still to function 
as a unified body in spite of the diversity that we see lived out within the membership. Just as this physical body is made up of many different parts, it is but one body. Right? There's not two of me. My body has a specific number of pieces to it that make it complete. There's diversity in the members and diversity in what the members are gifted to do in service of the body, both locally and globally. Thirdly, there is to be interdependency of the members. Look at what it says here in verse 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Holy cow. (laughs) You take this little group that is so diverse and God says you are one and there is an interdependency upon one another. I'm not making it up. This is what God says. This is what we are to strive to do to see fleshed out within our little church is the interdependence that makes it function like it's supposed to. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 26. That the members may have the same care for one another and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. The whole body benefits from what each individual part contributes. And if one part of the body is not making its contribution, then another part of the body has to compensate for that. I've heard these stories of of people who needed to have knee replacement surgery and they put it off and they put it off and they put it off and they began to walk with a very definite limp. And when they were finally ready to go and get that knee fixed, you know what happened? The limp never went away. The body compensated for what the knee couldn't do in such a way that it was irreparably affected by the lack of service the other part of that body part was to give. So what happens in the life of the church when there is to be unity and diversity and interdependence? When you say, no, I'm not going to serve, or yes, but I'm only going to do it on my terms. Well, then we suffer. The body suffers. Well, I just don't know that I've ever experienced that in my life. Well, you can take this up with what God's Word says. Because God's Word says that there is an interdependency upon the body. And if one part suffers, then the whole body suffers. If you're going through great grief in your life, the church is to surround you and go through that grief with you. When you're rejoicing and celebrating in your life, as Mike and Lindsay are with the expectancy of a baby, we rejoice with them. Lindsay's had two miscarriages and we've grieved with her through that. And so we as a body want to walk with her through this in such a way that she doesn't feel alone. That she experiences the hand of God, the feet of God, the voice of God through the body that ministers to her. And if we don't do that, then there's someone who suffers as a result of that. The point is this. Each member functions to serve the body, not the body to serve the members. Let me say that again. Each member functions to serve the body, not the body to serve the members. It's the focus 
that what can you do for your church, not can, what can my church do for me? Does that bring to mind John Kennedy's inaugural speech? I don't know if he got that from the Bible, but that's the principle. Far too often the church asks itself, what can you do for me? How are you going to benefit me? How are you going to move me along or whatever this thing is that I'm pursuing? And it's the wrong question. The question should be, how can I serve the body? We are, inter- inter- excuse me, we are interdependently related to each other. And since God has ordained this to be true, we cannot diminish the importance of what your part in the body is to do. We cannot look down on those with different roles. We are not to elevate one above the other because God has gifted us as he has seen fit. And as we're going to look at very, very quickly, number six in our outline, a gifted service. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We're going to revisit this principle in this part of this passage in the week ahead. So we'll add a lot more to that. So here's what we want to get today. Number one is this. The gifts our divine enablement. God is the author and the giver of the gift, and He is determined and seen fit to give as He has seen fit, and we don't necessarily get to pick and choose what gift we're going to get from the Lord. We are to be faithful to serve Him with the gift that He has given to us. A spiritual gift to be used in service for the body, locally, and globally, as a form of dedicated service based upon God's mercy. Three main truths we're going to look at this and we'll elaborate next week. Number one is this, our gifts differ. We are not all gifted the same way, just like in the physical body. Not all ears, not all eyes, not all hands, not all feet. It'd be a monster, right? Number two, our gifts gifts are by His grace. If you sit there and wallow because God didn't give you the gift of teaching... You're missing the point. God has given you a gift. Regardless of what it is, you are to rejoice in it and give thanks to Him for it and serve Him faithfully. Number three, our gifts are to be used. We need to get out the duster and get the dust off the gift that God has given. And we need to faithfully serve and we need to exercise them accordingly because it will build up the body of Christ. We'll close with this. First Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Look at what that says. You and me as a child of God have been given a gift from God are called to employ it by serving one another as good stewards, as faithful, trustworthy managers of the grace of God. Peter didn't say it like Paul said it. Paul said in view of God's mercies, etc., etc. Peter says, serve your gift as a good steward according to the grace of God. 
So church, what will we do? As we've talked about this gift of salvation and the joy of salvation, as we talk about theoretically this great big wheel that exists within the ministry of Grace Fellowship Church, who's going to stand behind the wheel to push it to get it going so that the body of Christ is serving as it should, so the body of Christ that is not here yet will be brought in, who's going to do that? I remember babysitting for my niece. She was a little girl, two years old, red-haired, and a fireball, oh my gosh, sitting at the dining room table, and she would balance herself on a chair on two legs, and she would wobble it around, and I'd say, you're going to fall, you're going to fall. And she'd say, no, no, not me, no, no, not me. And eventually, kaplunk, she hit the floor. So when I say, who's going to get that wheel rolling? Who's going to be with us to to serve the body of Christ. Will you say, no, no, not me? Or will you, like the faithful, say, here am I? Send me. Would you pray with me? Father, what a wonderful thing you've done for us in giving us the ability to serve you. And what it is you've given us to do is irrelevant. Whatever you have given us to do, we are to be faithful to present ourselves sacrificially, in view of your mercies, to do it for the betterment of the body of Christ, locally and globally. God, each of us will resist that in some form or fashion at some time or another. Would you just deeply convict us of that? Maybe it's just getting off the couch and getting in the car and driving to visit someone. Maybe it's being willing to spend a couple of hours a week in your word to put together a lesson to teach. Maybe it's to get up a little bit earlier so we can bow our hearts and our minds before you and read your word and to give ourselves to you in prayer so that we could be transformed. Father, wherever we are in this journey, would you guide, would you encourage, would you comfort, would you lead And yes, God, would you convict so that this body of believers would be exactly what you desire it to be? Would you find in us a desire to serve you in a manner that you are well pleased with as we think about what you've done for us through Christ on the cross? We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.